0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with one of the best young songwriters, youngish songwriters, in, <laughs> in America, Justin Towns Earl, who has a beautiful new album called The Saint of Lost Causes. And welcome, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: How do you feel age-wise? Are you feeling young, or are you feeling young-ish, or are you feeling older than your years?
1: I've been on this earth too long. Uh, you know. <laughs> it is. It's been a long rough life. <laughs> but I mean that just happens. I mean, but you don't get to write songs the way that I write songs if you don't, you know, live.
0: But you've talked about that being a little bit of a trap too, that idea, right? I mean, it could be dangerous thinking that you got to live to provide Christ it, for the art.
1: Well, yeah. it is. It's like, well, you no, know, I'm what I'm saying is you don't got to shoot speed balls to be able to write songs. You don't got to be all fucked up to write songs. I know songwriters like uh, Joe Pug. You know, and I always call him, he's like, such a nice guy. And he's like, you know, college educated, not a drunkard. He can write a great song. So it's not a prerequisite. But one thing you have to do is take your earbuds out, get your head out of your goddamn iPhone, and pay attention to what's going on around you, um, the world around you, because... Otherwise, you're going to write diary entries, and nobody wants to hear your diary entries.
0: That's always come natural to that, observing the world. Does it become more of a challenge as your life goes on, and the world gets more full of
1: distractions? Well, I do think that it does get harder to find, find interesting things to write about amongst the public, because I think that we're, you know, it's just the way that it is right now. I mean, not just America, but the world is in a fucked up state right now. A lot of bad shit going on that you have to you really have to process what you i mean like i was sitting in a waffle house and at one time and i heard this guy behind me tell this girlfriend go look woman if you ain't glad i'm leaving you ought to be and i was like oh and i wrote ain't glad i'm leaving (laughs) whoa right after that so you know it's things like that i mean nowadays we have to be it's it's treacherous. This world is it's hard now. It's
0: weird. I mean, I once happened to sit next to your dad at a Bruce Springsteen concert like three years ago. I didn't realize it was him till like halfway through. In fact, I kind of grumbled on him because his phone was too bright and it was in that dark concert. You know, it's classic old dude stuff. But while Bruce was playing a song, I just happened to see Steve pulled out his iPhone and started, he clearly had been struck by inspiration, started writing lyrics right there.
1: So Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've always been a cocktail napkin writer. My dad's the same way. It's just like, it's not sitting down at, at a desk and like, I got to finish this song today. It can take me six months to write a song because, I mean, if you stole one of my notepads, you could get a whole stem pad that just has one song in it over mm. and over and over again, edited, 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 going over and over and over again. But, you know, that's patient about writing songs. But knowing that if you want to be a songwriter, you need to be a songwriter and nothing else matters.
0: Mm. There's a lot of approaches, but just to put it on polar ends, there's the Leonard Cohen type approach, which is revise, revise, revise. There's the Neil Young approach, which is basically like first draft, best draft. You've always been on the Leonard Cohen side, I guess.
1: Yeah, I've always been the, I mean, you know, most people who think that their first guess is the right guess, you need to keep that to, uh, you know, shoot and pull. not life and not art. Because it's, you know, you're probably wrong. You'll probably find something different. I mean, you'll probably think of something better later if you give it time to rest and you're within you.
0: On your new album and on, you know, basically your whole catalog, you're drawing on a really wide range of Roots music, which kind of includes, stretches all the way to, like, Springsteen and the replacements and all the way back to Woody Guthrie and and maybe before Old Blues Men and stuff. But do you ever feel a little bit like one of the Last Jedi kind of things? Because the tradition is a little bit withering on the vine to a certain extent in the larger culture.
1: I do think that it is withering. Kurt Cobain was not a great songwriter because the first thing that he heard was Thin Lizzy and he based everything off Thin Lizzy or Springsteen he was a great songwriter because he went all the way back to Lead Belly he understood Woody Guthrie he understood Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee songwriting is is such a history if you get to do this for a living you owe something to the past you know, and you got to be ballsy to step up and write a song like They Killed John Henry or same old Staggle Lee. But it is your responsibility to carry on those traditions if you're going to use them. Up Chestnut Hill, down on Murphy's Pike. Set
0: up. But yeah, even in, you know, certainly not in country music, not a ton in anywhere other people. No.
1: So so how do you feel about that? It's awful. All that bro country bullshit that's coming out of Nashville now. I mean, even hip hop drives me insane now. I mean, what happened to Flo? Yeah. You know, now it's like... But, you know, this, this happens to all forms of music. I mean, if you sat next to Howlin' Wolf right now and asked him what he thought about the state of the blues, he'd say, ain't no blues. Right. He wouldn't be happy about it. You ever heard his quote about Eric Clapton? where he was asked, I think it was in Mojo Magazine, he said, they said, uh, what do you think about all these British blues prodigies? And he goes, British blues prodigies? Like, who?" Oh. they go, like Eric Clapton. And he goes, i tell you what Eric Clapton can do is he can take that wee wah pedal and throw it in the creek on his way down to the barbershop. <laughs> I never heard that one. <laughs> wee wah pedal.
0: You reach out kind of Externally, I think as much as you ever have on almost every song on this album, it's really very little that's autobiographical other than maybe the last track, Talking to Myself.
1: I'll admit I'm lonely I need someone to hold me just to sleep at night be this alone. is definitely my most outward-looking record. You know, I was processing a lot of stuff that... And it takes me years to process things. Like, people ask me, have you wrote a song about your daughter? I was like, she's only two. I'll write, maybe when she's five, I'll process <laughs> it enough to get something about it. You know, But I wanted to take what Springsteen did for New Jersey and spread it around America. So, I ah, yes, to Nina. I'm at a, a Puerto Rican guy from the Alphabets who got locked up on mandatory minimums, and he's just off the bus from Clinton, correctional and they put him out on the Bowery and and he runs into his daughter for the first time as a teenager. Over Alameda is about a kid from the Jordan Downs housing projects in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Flint City Shake It, Appalachian Night, all that stuff. You know, it's like spread it around because I think we've forgotten that we're Americans.
0: Hmm,
1: We're all Americans. The
0: Appalachian Nightmare is like the level of detail in that I can think a few other, yeah, examples of that besides like uh, Springsteen stuff. Yeah. Maybe you can. I was wondering if there's other, any other models for that level of storytelling detail in the song.
1: Smoking and drinking age 13, Skipping class and getting hot. That was a hard song to write because it was a lot yeah. of of detail, and I'll probably never play it live because I'll never be able to remember all those damn words. <laughs> you gotta use the prompter, like Bruce. No, never. <laughs> but that's the thing that we we have to remember is like you know it's like you think about like for so long people were like oh you know big drug problems well, that's a black people problem and a Mexican problem and a you know da 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 all this but you know what go to Appalachia and say, if you marginalize anybody, they will respond. They will respond. They're going to do what they got to do to survive. So in Appalachia, they robbed the hell out of drugstores, and they cooked the hell out of meth. And it's ruined Appalachia. The same thing that ruined South Central Los Angeles, the same thing that ruined South Nashville.
0: There's a degree of parallel to the guy's story in that song, To Your Own Life, obviously.
1: A bit, yeah. I mean, I lived in Appalachia. I lived in Johnson City, Tennessee for a little while, Poggy, Tennessee, Butler, Tennessee for a little while, which is, you know, right on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. And yeah, it was ate up with uh, pharmaceuticals in the 90s. I mean, long before people started worrying about, oh, you know, now they're trying to sue drug companies because people are addicted to OxyContin. That's like (laughs) a drug company's problem. It's our problem.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, it it does sound like they were pushing doctors to prescribe and all that kind of
1: thing. Well, I mean, they got something to sell, don't they? They got something to sell, but it it ain't a drug company's problem that somebody started taking pills you know what the problem is is something hurt inside them something wasn't right inside them and the world didn't treat them right they never felt comfortable and they found something that made them comfortable i mean i remember the first time i shot her when i was 12 years old and nothing had ever felt right in my life Mm. but when i when that plunger went down i mean it was like a warm blanket wrapped over me and Everything was okay. They got un-okay really fast, you know, that first time. That's the bitch. But we do have to realize this, though. It's not people who have drug problems are missing something inside them
0: yeah 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 i mean i've talked to a lot of people who lived hardcore lives and then became dads or moms and it it tends to start to give you new perspective especially as as your kid gets older you still have a just a little kid but are you already starting to flip perspectives a little bit and see like geez what the the hell is going on that that i got that bad i was 12 years old
1: well you know no nothing will ever change the heart that's inside of me yeah, and, you know, it goes way deeper than my father. I was a kid. I was, I was abandoned. I was molested. I was beaten. Jesus. You know, so everybody's lucky. I'm not a serial killer. I mean, and so there's something that will always be missing inside of me. But I will protect my daughter. I will protect my daughter and make sure that that does not happen to her. I do the best I can to do that. I hope she has a better life than I did.
0: Yeah. Well, your life's not over yet, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you're still writing the story.
1: Yeah, you know, it's still going. It's still going. On, and I mean, well, I, so, I hope she has a better youth than I did. That's the thing.
0: There seems like a degree of like a, a journey of self-repair that, that you're on to a certain extent. How much of it is in therapy and stuff? Because I know you, you told me last time we spoke that, you know, you've talked to a few head shrinkers, you said. and uh, But how much is through like your art? Or is that like too romantic to imagine that that's a, a healing thing?
1: Well, I mean, it's definitely what I do, like, writing songs and performing, is if I didn't do that, I mean, I would be insane. Not to mention it's you know, the only way I know how to make money other than selling dope. Mm. You know, so if I didn't do this, then I'd be in prison or dead right now. And so there's something very therapeutic about it. I love being on stage. I love writing songs, all those things. Um, but once again, it's not, you can't write songs that are diary entries. Yeah, you, know, you can't do diary entries. Nobody wants to hear that. Even Mama's Eyes, like songs like that, that's not a diary entry. I left a lot open for what uh, other people want to think.
0: Yeah, those two songs, uh, Mama's Eyes and and Farther Away from Me, are, are like an, from two really powerful albums that are paired in the same way. But I mean, th- those are pretty defining songs about like your a sort of essential dilemma on some level, and it also feels like after those two albums pave the way for something like this where you're reaching more outside yourself
1: yeah well no i think that i had to i had to write those songs i wouldn't have been able to put them on my first record those songs needed to be later because i needed to grow up to be able to a little bit to write those songs and yeah i had to process a lot of things within me and also grow up and quit being so self-centered as a (laughs) you know i mean it's like I'm, i'm a songwriter i'm arrogant as hell You know, and so I start looking around me and realizing that, you know, yeah, I hurt, but there's a lot of people who hurt worse
0: mama's eyes is you know just to set it up for people is a, essentially a song about seeing your your mother in you and seeing that as a redemption from whatever you don't like about maybe what you inherited from your dad if i maybe
1: oversummarize. yeah no it, it is it's absolutely like um you know it's the idea of somebody who's um they're exactly like their father which was the last thing they wanted to be not saying that you not they wanted to do for a living but as a person you didn't want to end up doing all the things that your daddy did uh and you did <laughs> And your last saving grace is everything about you is like your father, except for one night, very depressed. You light a cigarette, and uh, you see in the mirror, and your eyes are shaped like your mother's. And that's the only <laughs> the only thing you got that you feel is redeeming. <laughs> and let's hear that for a minute. That's 3 a.m., and I'm standing in the kitchen, I'm holding my last cigarette.
0: And then let's just talk about the other song, uh, Farther From Me, which, man, I mean, so have you ever sat down and actually discussed what's in that song with your actual dad?
1: No. No, we don't really talk about those. You know, I think the going back to Mama's Eyes, the first time I he heard Mama's Eyes was he was standing like the, the Proud Father on the edge of the Ryman Auditorium stage. when I, I think it was opening for Old Crow Medicine Show or something like that years ago. And um, I played it solo. Yeah. <laughs> I remember walking off stage and he goes, yeah, like, is a, it's a, that's a good song, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think probably what's most brutal about Farther for me is when you put yourself in, in his shoes and you're like so many nights all alone, coast to coast, haunted by the ghost of a child's hopes. It's like, I yeah. mean, that, that's fucking brutal, man. <laughs> no,
1: that, I haven't actually thought about that song in a while, but yeah, coast Sorry. to coast, haunted by the ghost of a child's hopes. And I mean, it's... um i've always been brutally honest with my songs i mean uh, nobody can tell me that i'm not honest in my writing you know nobody's gonna say that i wrote about bullshit <laughs>
0: there's two songs about flint michigan on this record the new record besides the outrage that everyone kind of shares what led you in that uh, direction
1: well the same what i was talking about earlier about marginalizing people and this is the thing it's like yeah you can take that back to roger smith in in gmc when he took gmc and moved all the factories out of flint moved them out of detroit but you know what it's like people who blame politicians for things it's like if you blame a politician or something we let it happen we let it happen americans but if people in flint michigan south central los angeles Appalachia uh, knew how much they had in common i think we could get things together a little bit better but we have to realize that we let things happen and we can't say they you know i'm on the left well and they're on the right no no we americans i don't care what side you're on we're Americans.
0: Your sound has varied from record to record, but there's still like an aesthetic that I associate with you. One of the things is like stand-up bass, I and mean, just a certain size and a certain soundscape to the, the recordings. And you've obviously worked as a producer yourself. You co-produced this record. Like, How would you describe the kind of production that you like, that you want to make for these songs?
1: Well, you know, each record is different. Each song is different. But I had the grace of being born a southerner. And one thing that we have is every form of popular music American music was created in the south. Bluegrass, country, jazz, blues, and then it all heads up to Memphis and becomes rock and roll. Mm. So what that gives us is um if you pay attention, you have the chance to to really know get into the roots of all those kinds of music and understand them from their base. If you don't pay attention then you're stupid. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But it does, it gives you this thing where you feel these, we know how it grooves. I mean, it's just something that feels right about it. It's All those kinds of music, we created them. And I say southerners, and that means black, white, Creole, whatever you wanna be. It's a it, southerner, we're just southern Americans. It's ground zero.
0: How important was Tom Waits to just formation of your
1: style? Tom Waits was very important because I loved the way that he, his his ability, his, his imagery, Um, I remember that song Hang Down Your Head off Rang Dogs, Mm. where he says, Hush your wild violin, hush your band of gold, hush your inner story. I've heard somebody told. That is simple and so beautiful, but at the same time, he'll have a line where it says, Meet me by the knuckles of the skinny bone tree. Yeah. (laughs) Like what in the fuck I mean it's like and you know his wife is his co-writer on a, a lot of his stuff and so their brains together are something else you know it works I mean even his early stuff like you know it's well it's fast women and slow horses and unreliable sources and now I'm holding up this lamppost if you want to know, <laughs> you know that's, right yeah and even what was that song uh, someone got a side on the back street say slacko got a brand new slack and your baby's handcuffed on the back seat said we're sitting right there boy you relax <laughs> 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 I mean, think he has a line on that same song half pint of festival brandy sacko drink a whiskey in church <laughs> Jesus <laughs> it's insane which other artists have you like
0: kind of absorbed every lyric to that extent that you can rattle them off like who else is in the absolute top of the pantheon for you
1: Springsteen and Malcolm Holcomb very important I mean one of the most important songs to me I think it's one of the most perfect songs ever written and not the original recording I actually I don't like the original recording of Thunder Road I don't but there's too grandiose for you there was just something about it like I mean I I liked it but I get this uh, the live 1975 to 85 box set the first on the first part of it is a version of Thunder Road with just Danny Federici playing piano and Springsteen singing and playing harmonica, and it's slow. Yeah, yeah. And it changed it to where... You know, those lines, like a screen door slams and Mary's dress waves, like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays. Those are some lines. I mean, they're, it's some serious, you're ghosts in the eyes of all the boys you sent away. They haunt this dusty beach road and the skeleton frames of burned out Chevrolets. Can't really top that, no. No, I think it is one of the most perfect songs written. But Malcolm Holcomb was very influential. Shane McGowan was very influential for me. For the same reason, the way that he, you know, his imagery, like a pair of brown eyes, you know. That opening line, when summer evening drunk to hell, I sat there nearly lifeless. When an old (laughs) man in the corner sang where the water lilies grow. I mean that is fucking amazing. But Malcolm had this um, simplicity about him. He's one of the most electrifying performers I've ever seen play play solo acoustic. But he has this song called "Who Carried You," mm. The opening line from a Cajun diner to Carolina. Sick in the morning, see the town doctor. Life in Agatha Christie on a trailways back to New Orleans. Who done it? Who carried you? From a Cajun diner to Carolina. Sick in the morning,
0: see the town doctor he's more in the underrated category People way, sleep on him. Yeah.
1: way underrated i mean and too i mean he was a nightmare for a while i mean it was insane i've been at shows with malcolm where i mean back in the day where the doorman wouldn't let him in because he thought he was homeless it's <laughs> like no no dude that's the guy playing uh, yeah,
0: yeah it's funny you toured with lily hyatt which is like a little on the nose in a way do you think that there's love it or hate it is there some genetic component to like songwriting talent
1: no, yeah, really? I know because I mean, there's plenty of sons and daughters of that are sh- the shittiest songwriters you've ever seen <laughs> in your life. Most of them are uh-huh. because they're trying to live up to something and they're try and they sound too much like their parents. Uh, one thing I love about Lily. As even growing up with her her dad like I mean she has a sound like nothing else these weird cadences she's great yeah. wild I mean good lyrics you know it's like I didn't she didn't ride our, we didn't ride our daddy's coattails into this business we created something for ourselves. our daddies can't do what we do we can't do what our daddies do
0: mm. Is it an irritating assumption that I don't think anyone thinks you rode the coattails But that oh man well you were just born to it man Like look who
1: your dad is Like you, that, that the town was in you Yeah it's like yeah it was in me I met him when I was probably like 14 or something like, you know, For the for, for most part I mean we knew of course We I saw him as I was young But really got to know him when I was like fucking to like 12 or So somewhere around there I grew up with my mother In a shitty run down apartment On food stamps You know what makes the best grilled cheese sandwich in the world government cheese gonna be like brown box best grilled cheese you ever had (laughs) right that Uh was your life
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah you know so like people are like oh it was like growing up and you you with your i was like i didn't grow up with my dad i grew up with my mama that's why i wrote mama's eyes not daddy's eyes
0: (laughs) (laughs) did he really fire you from his band at one point
1: yeah 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 i caused ten thousand dollars worth of damage to a hotel room in berlin and then um what was the nature Sh- of the damage? Shut up. It's actually pretty funny. I'm still banned from Millennium Hotels worldwide because <laughs> <laughs> I was junked out back then. And I was like, we were in Berlin, and I got on the train, like outside our hotel, and went up to this spot where I knew to copped up, got high. and got off at the wrong stop coming back and when i got i was on this open air market and remember that manic panic hair dye back in the day so i was like i mean and this was way after the grunge thing i was just like i hadn't seen it in so long and it was all fucked up and i was just like oh wow manic panic and so i got a, i don't even remember i bought a jar of the like clown red manic panic <laughs> i went back to my hotel and i don't remember doing this but you know, Millennium hotels—they're all white. The sure, floors okay. are white, carpets white, the walls are white, everything's white. I woke up, woke up in the morning, laying on the floor, naked. <laughs> Stood up and saw red handprints, footprints all over, all over the room, all over the walls, all over the, <laughs> all over everything. And I, I, I was you, just like, think, "Yeah, I don't think oh. you used the hair dye right." Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was like, "What the, what the." fuck what's happened like I, I thought it was blood and i like go into the go into the bathroom and what i'd done was i'd evidently put the hair dye in and got high and knotted out and, and didn't rinse it out so i'd passed out in the middle of the, of the i'm passed out in the middle of the and you should have seen where my head was because it was like this deep red that just radiated out it looks like a target footprints Everyone's all over the place. I
0: mean, that must have been some conversation when you then got fired from your own dad's band.
1: Well, at that point, I decided to... Um, I was already living with two of the nastiest hookers in South Nashville, Tennessee, in a motel when I was off. So I, I didn't much care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what year was that?
1: It'd been about 2000.
0: Okay, so then it took a while after that to get to your first album.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like
0: eight years, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I almost made a record for... Fuck, what is that record called? Lost Highway when I was 18 years old. It was right around the same time that all this shit happened. Um, but actually the same A&R person that signed me to, to New West, Kim Bowie, decided not to sign me to Lost Highway because I was too fucked up. She liked the songs, but it was like, we already got Ryan Adams, we don't need to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was, I think, 2011, you had like a relapse, a pretty dramatic one. Uh, has it been fairly smooth for you in that time since, as, as smooth as it can be? Or what? what's the sobriety ride been like?
1: That's bumpy. Yeah. that is. You know, that's what I do for a living. But sobriety to me means I don't shoot heroin and cocaine together.
0: Right. You smoke weed, right? A lot of weed. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. A lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's your intake like? I mean, when you say a lot, like wake About and a bake? Or we quarter talking?
1: quarter ounce a day. Uh-huh. Do you do edibles, or you're, you just... They're okay, but you just never know what you're getting. Uh-huh. I like Gorilla Glue. I think sticking with the Gorilla Glue, I like spliffs. smoke like the big, cone spliffs, 15 to 18 of them a day. That's a, a great deal of weed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: do you have anyone warning you that that's somehow bad for someone who has a history of addiction? Because there is some people who, who would think that.
1: No, I've never asked anybody a goddamn thing about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know some people would be like, oh, that's, you know, that... Oh, yeah, so th- of course they would. Of yeah. course they would. My dad's one of them. He's like, you do you, I'll do me. <laughs> you know? Don't worry about it. But you don't drink or you do? No.
0: Yeah. So that's pretty much... That's where you draw the line.
1: Yeah, fucking
0: yeah. four pounds of weed a week. <laughs> that's,
1: that's. Yeah, I mean it's like two ounces a week, basically. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Do you write high? Can you can you write high? Yeah, yeah. Does it help you? You think?
1: Um, I'm not sure if it does, but it's just one of those things. When I sit and write, I. It's just like I smoke. Like if I sit down to go, like put things together, it just goes, it goes, it goes, it goes. I mean, I don't think that there's any substance that helps people write songs. I'm an ADHD kid, so you know, a little speed focuses your brain up, but it doesn't mean that it helps you. I think you said you were
0: doing some non-songwriting, just some writing. I don't know if it was fiction or or what, but what's the deal with that?
1: I'm still working on it. It's a book called Baseball Blues and LSD: Cultural Revolutions in America. I think that what would America be like if we Never had baseball, never got the blues, and, uh, never had LSD.
0: I like that. Uh, yeah. So, is that that's an actual nonfiction research kind of thing or just kind yeah. of, yeah?
1: Yeah, it's something I've been working on for for a while, just slowly. Were
0: psychedelics ever
1: part of your drug addict? Well, actually, you know, I do take a lot of LSD. You I do? do? Oh, fuck yeah. Okay. But I got real shit, Owsley acid, you know, real stuff, not some shit that you get from your cousin, you know. <laughs> Nobody knows what that's like. You know, It's a very different thing.
0: It's hard to get nowadays, isn't it?
1: No. <laughs> well, it depends on who you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I've had people say that they can't get it anymore, but
1: it uh, yeah, well, must they, be too old. That's because they screwed up. You know, <laughs> People are like, you know my buddy who's a deadhead? It's like, no, I know actual deadheads, like real ones, not just some guy who bought a fucking tie-dyed shirt in 1982, like the, the guys who grew up with Owsley and all that stuff.
0: I mean, every baby boomer... I've spoken to about their LSD experiences and like every boomer has one every creative boomer has one but they're all like I did it 12 times and it actually cracked up on my creativity but then one time I had the worst trip ever and then I never did it again so but you just keep going
1: well I mean and baby boomers are all proud of themselves because they're like we went into the Vietnam War it's like well yeah you know what and you screwed up the stock market in the 80s (laughs) didn't you because you turned right and went straight (laughs) That is true. Yep. But what about, have you ever had a truly bad trip? Um, no, no. And not even when I was a kid and I took the bad shit. But that's the thing is it's bad acid that gives you bad trips.
0: That's interesting. Uh, do you kind of do a daily microdose? No, no,
1: no, no. You don't, no. You don't
0: believe in that. You, you, if you're I, dosing, you That's dos- okay.
1: I mean, well, you know, I like to, well, I'm not going to say how I carry it, but I always have it on me. And if I'm like, you know, you're delayed at the airport, just like, Psh, peace out. Boom <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you go. <laughs> Aren't
0: you afraid of just, you know, fucking freaking out on the airplane, or are you just so used to it at this point?
1: Once again, don't take bad acid.
0: <laughs> yeah. you got a strong physical and mental constitution, clearly. Something like that. I don't want to dwell too hard on this topic, but what do you get out of it? Out of, like, like a else do you happen?
1: Well, you know, it's like, I don't take it and go out to the club, go out to the bar. It is a very spiritual thing. I don't want to give it to, you know, a bunch of guys and hang out and blah, you know, screw that. It's a very spiritual thing for me. I think it it opens up the mind i think that it allows the mind you find the angles it's weird because your music is not conventionally psychedelic fuck no it's not so i'm not a fucking hippie i mean it's like (laughs) you know you're not gonna get no marshmallow chocolate covered overcoat for me i mean but that's the thing is like i don't it's not to influence the music that's for the head i think uh, you know tons of people will disagree with that it's like well you had bad acid sorry (laughs)
0: Do you have any weakness for
1: like the dead fish anything that was this- fuck no <laughs> i do not like never liked fish i never got into that shit i was really good friends with john perry barlow who wrote a lot of the dead songs i do like the dead record the working man's dead yeah
0: everybody likes that yeah. but the
1: rest of it's like i mean a lot of it's just like wandering spindly shit you know to me and i think garcia was incredibly talented i think pigpen was incredibly talented you know i mean Some of the shit that Jerry Garcia did, his bluegrass stuff, was, (laughs) it was awesome. Tell me about your journey
0: from, you've talked a lot of times about Nirvana Unplugged and the Lead Belly moment, but what was your journey to really digging into Roots music from there? What were the kind of steps along the way and what did you learn?
1: Well, it was, I mean, it was actually that Unplugged record where I discovered who Lead Belly was and it was an obsession with Lead Belly. I mean, a, a total obsession with lead belly that I then ended up from there discovering Woody Guthrie, then Dylan, and then went back to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Son House. And I mean, this was like when I was 12, 13, you know, right around there. Just a 12 year old shooting heroin and listening to the blues. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's,
0: that's some crazy shit, man.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was a shit. I mean,. <laughs> <laughs> like i said if i wasn't playing music i'd be selling dope and that's what i've always did before i started playing music <laughs> so sonny terry mcgee and then we're from there oh sonny terry Barry mcgee then we got you know and i went through this real serious like emmett meller comes up moon Mullican comes up you just start getting into all this uh, starting really deep into the blues stuff
0: and were you learning to play this stuff at that time or did it take a way longer to actually play it yourself on guitar and stuff
1: i put the guitar pick down at that point and started playing with my fingers and i sold got rid of my i didn't care about electric guitars <laughs> started playing acoustic and that's it and um, um it took um i think by the time i was 14 when i i learned to play the so different blues by mans Lipscomb.
0: yeah wake up with the so different blue. Anytime, every week. That's a pretty complicated finger
1: picking That's a pretty complicated weird ragtime song.
0: Did you have anyone teaching or were you just kind of picking this stuff My
1: up? My dad showed it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was like, he was, I was like, yeah, show this to me. He was like, you're not going to be able to do that. I was just like, just show it to me. Show it to me. And he showed me and then I ended up getting this, um, what's the movie called? A, a Life Well Spent by this guy or Well Spent Life. I can't remember, but it's a guy, Les Blank. He made these movie about Vance Lipscomb Life Will Spent and then The Blues According to Lightning Hopkins Mm. I got both of those movies and I was just upset I had a one of those TV combos with the VHS and I had the tapes and I would just sit there and like rewind and just watch their fingers you know just play and try to try to learn it I mean just back and forth I mean I don't know what chords I'm playing. I don't ever know what key I'm in. I don't think Lightning Hopkins ever knew what key he was in.
0: (laughs) I mean, and we're talking, this is the mid-90s, so this is like very little to do with anything that was going on in the larger culture. You were in your own kind of world it feels like
1: well i had that world but you know it's like i also i'm white trash from tennessee if you're white trash g- grew up in the 90s i mean you listen to punk rock metal and hip hop I, I listen to all that stuff when i was away from my friends i listened to all this stuff because they hated it
0: <laughs> the blue stuff the Oh, uh, they, yeah, they were just yeah.
1: like what what is that shit my buddy carlos miller says he was like what is that honky shit you're listening to i said Dude, that's Lightning Hopkins. I was like, he ain't (laughs) no honky.
0: did you learn to play 90s rock and all that shit too can you rock out a sublime song if you want <laughs>
1: if you need to? not a sublime <laughs> song but i can play some uh, i can play some a lot of nirvana i can play a, a lot of Sleater kenny and, and things like that i was in a band uh God, what i can't even remember what me and my cousin called it when my cousin is a great drummer he was in a band called later became a hardcore drummer he was a band called uh, evergreen terrace on a, Florida, we're great hardcore but when we were kids, we had a punk rock band, and it was messy. <laughs> it was messy.
0: Do you ever get the private urge to write stuff in that kind of van ever?
1: No. No, it takes a different kind of energy. You know, I mean, I know Mike Ness very well, and you know, he has to go in the back of his truck that carries all his gear. When they empty it, they set up a boxing rig. And he has a speed bag, he has a heavy bag. The mats are all down. He bands his feet together, and he goes in there and just, I mean, just goes for it for hours before the show i think that you have to do that to keep playing punk <laughs> rock or otherwise you'd kill somebody Jesus.
0: but yeah i mean i could see you could very easily in a slightly shifted over world be fronting a band like social distortion i don't think that's so crazy
1: you know it's like it's funny it's like i could see it but i'm more interested in like you know it's like i want to make a jazz record i want to i want to do a record with the preservation hall band justin towns Earl sings the best of billy holiday with uh, the preservation hall band oh dude do
0: that That sounds fantastic. <laughs>
1: Right. We just got to talk the record label into paying for it. Yeah. (laughs) And them into doing it.
0: (laughs) Have you seen them a bunch of times in Preservation Hall? There's something about that. I've
1: played with them a few times. Oh, wow. I know Ben Jaffe pretty good. And I've seen them at Preservation Hall and I've seen them out at the uh, chapel in San Francisco, too. And it's a special thing.
0: There's something almost holy about seeing them in the hall without the amplification and stuff. Absolutely. Like. It's one of the most incredible musical experiences I've probably ever had.
1: It's insane. It is. It's incredible. So,
0: Justin time's our own, man, thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate <laughs>
1: it. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. Check out Justin's new album, The Saint of Lost Causes.
1: Saint of Lost Causes. And
0: we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.